The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Now when we look at these, these readings today, um, there's, uh, there's some really beautiful things to consider. One is just Paul's letters right? and, and how Paul writes, what he writes, why he writes. And that second reading... It's the conclusion of, of the letter uh, that he, he wrote to that, that audience. And there's this overwhelming amazement that Paul seems to have that's trying to, 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 get, to grasp a hold of this unsearchable and inscrutable plan of God to save the world in and through Jesus. Like it's just, it's baffling to Paul's mind that God in his infinite wisdom is saving us through Jesus. And yet at the same time, he believes it, which is why he writes about it, why he preaches about it, why he had his whole conversion. But it's this, it's this unobtainable reality. It's, it's this idea that God's design is so beyond our comprehension. His greatness is so beyond anything independent of an earthly gift and it's actually meant to leave us in a sense of wonder and awe that wow what what have we done to deserve such a god and the short answer is nothing we have literally done nothing to deserve the the gifts that god bestows upon us and yet we are receptive of these gifts we are receivers of these gifts and so we, what do we do with them? Even though we, I'm not worthy to have them, he gives them to me regardless. So I shouldn't squander that. I shouldn't waste that. And that's where, that's where Paul's coming from, this, this just overwhelming idea that God is so magnificent, so big, and he's like, what have we done to deserve it? It's nothing. Well, so that kind of leads a little bit into the gospel today, right? And there's this breakdown of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and he asks them this first question. It's a pretty basic question. It's almost a question we've probably asked other people, like, hey, what do people think about me? Like, what do, what do people say about me, right? It'd be like if me, I was up here and said, hey, congregation, tell me, what does Wabash think about Father Jay? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, he's like this guy. 
And so, like, Jesus is asking the disciples this first question, what do others think of him? He's like, he just wants the common, everyday person's answer. He doesn't ask, what do the Pharisees think about him? He knows what they think about him. He doesn't ask, what do the Sadducees think about him? He knows what they think about him. He's like, what's the everyday person think about? Like, who do they say I am? And in one sense, the response they give is very inadequate because it's just the opinions of others. It's just, well, well, I mean, some say that you're, you know, John the Baptist, but I'm, but I'm not. John's dead. I'm alive. Or one of the prophets. Okay, sure. Or, you know, maybe, you're like, you're Elijah. Like, again, just these randomly odd answers. And so the second question is more specific. It's, okay, well, who do you say that I am? Who, who am I to you? And Peter's the only one that responds, that we're aware of. That's all that scripture shares. And so Peter's response actually is adequate because he gives a very precise answer. Right? Jesus says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're not just an opinion or an idea or like one of these other people. This is who you are. And Jesus then gives this really beautiful response back to Peter, which maybe we don't always gather. So I want to kind of outline this a little bit for us. It's broken into kind of three segments. The first is this. Simon, or uh, Jesus says to Simon, blessed are you, Simon, and then the, the old translation is Simon Bar-Jonah. Here it's um, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar just means son in Hebrew. So he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And so the first idea here is there is something that the Father is revealing to him. God the Father is revealing something to Simon. And the fact is, like, Simon, like, received this gift from, the, from God to understand who Jesus is. It's a grace that has been revealed to Peter. That's the thing. He says, so blessed are you. Jesus blesses Peter, elevates him to be the chief patriarch of the new covenant. And what we maybe don't know here is that there's a lot of parallels between Genesis and Jesus's words. And they suggest that Peter assumes a role in salvation history similar to Abraham. And so what we recognize is both are blessed by God. Both respond with heroic faith. Both receive a divine mission. Both have their names changed. Both are called a rock. And both are assured of victory over the gate of their enemies. And so all of this is like, you can find all of this in Genesis, Hebrews, Isaiah, and, and there's this comparison that shows Peter and Abraham and, and their similarities. So the first thing is the God the Father revealing something to Simon about Jesus. This is cool. And that Peter, as his name has changed, has a new specific role in salvation history. Awesome. The second segment is that Jesus speaking clearly to Peter and saying, I will build my church upon you, your faith, your name, and nothing will stop this. There's a comparison of that now to Solomon in the Old Testament. As Solomon was the son of David and the anointed temple builder in the Old Testament, so Jesus is the Davidic son of God, he falls in the line, the lineage, and the anointed Messiah who builds the new church. Right? So Jesus is the, the, the foundation of our church, of Christianity. 
The last segment is when Jesus gives to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? There's this authoritative reality that, that Peter receives, and so he has the ability to bind and to loose, this symbol of teaching authority. So Jesus consecrates Peter as the church's chief teacher whose office will continue on through successors, right? Which is why we have the apostolic tradition. We have uh, the different popes for the papacy. We have the bishops and the episcopacy. We have the priests and the presbyter. All these fancy words, right? Just to say that there's this lineage that continues back to Christ. So this whole gospel is Jesus first saying, what's the everyday person say about me? But then more importantly, you who know me, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And notice he doesn't ask this when he first meets them. He asks this after months, maybe years in ministry where he's provided miracles, he's um, taught and, and just witnessed to them more of who he is. So like when Peter gives this response, it's not just this random, like bold, it's bold, but it's not this random, like I don't know the guy, so I'm just going to say it. It's actually because he has intimate knowledge of Jesus. And that proposes a question for us. And the question is, who do we say Jesus is? And the thing is, our answers, well, maybe sometimes they come out as inadequate, as the disciples shared in the first part, because we're just giving opinions and ideas. Well, who is Jesus? I guess he's a good guy. Okay, is he a guy? Is he a man? Is he God? Like, well, and I hear this a lot from people. You know, God and I, we've got a, we've got a, a deal worked out. Do you? Like, tell me more about this deal. And so we can give an answer to this. And, and again, maybe we think, well, it's, it's just my opinion. But we can actually give factual answer to who Jesus is based off of our relationship and our knowledge of him. And it's a way, it's way, way easier to answer a question like this once we know someone. If, if you would try to answer, like, who is Father Jay Horning, before I even got here, you'd be like, who is Father Jay Horning? I don't even know if this person's real. Now, over a year, maybe you can say, oh, these are certain things about him, and, and maybe some of them are opinions, some of them are facts, and that's fine. But the same concept has to be related to Jesus Christ. Right? We can say that Jesus, the name itself, means Savior. Jesus means Savior of the world. Christ means anointed one. Like these are translations of the Hebrew. But based off of what we just did in our Eucharistic 40-hour devotion, when we came and we spent time with God face-to-face in the Eucharist, hopefully that has, again, transformed us, changed us. Hopefully through relationship with him, through years of practicing the faith, we've develop this deeper sense of who he is. And we can say, God is my Savior. God is the Messiah. God is the one who redeems us, right? We can give more factual, deep things like, God has shown himself to me in this way in my life. Some of the takeaways from the 40 hours that I think are really important for us came from some of our speakers. And it's just their own witness to that knowledge that they've developed by encountering God over and over through prayer and the sacraments. And the first 
is reverence. Sister Fiat talked a lot about this idea of reverence, how we give honor to another person to um, venerate in a certain sense. And so reverence to God is not a complex thing, but maybe it's not something that we're habitually used to. And think about it like this. Reverence can be broken down, I would argue, into kind of three categories. There's probably more, but for the sake of time, we'll say three. And the first is just our approach, our actual physical approach, our gestures, how we enter a church. And I'm going through with the the grade school kids right now because a lot of them aren't Catholic. A lot of them don't have a lot of experience of going to church. Their families aren't at church on the weekends or they're not at a Catholic church, let's say. And so mass to them is different. It's new. And they don't know when to stand. They don't know when to sit. And like they're in the front. If you come to daily mass with us, you're probably like, what are these kids doing? Like, so I'm practicing with them. Like, what does it mean? Like, how do we enter into the church? Why do we genuflect? Why do we stand? Why do we kneel? Why do we bow? All these different things. But our approach is one of the ways that we give reverence to say, God, you are king of kings, lord of lords. And just like if someone with royal royalty came into a room, I would bow to them. I bow to you because you're greater than them even. I lay down my life to you because you gave me life. So reverence, our approach, and then from that, this idea of gratitude. Sister Fiat was really big on this idea of like giving gratitude back to God, giving thanks to him. So that's our first uh, one, approach. Second is the demeanor then. And demeanor is kind of tied into it, but it's the conduct, it's the behavior. Like how are we? Like do we, do we have a lot of side conversations in the church before or after mass or are we letting it be a place of quiet reverence to let others pray before God? Are we dressing in a way that we're going to a wedding feast? Like, I see people go to weddings and, like, we dress up. I see people go to funerals and they dress up. But when we go to mass, we like to wear maybe not as dressed in clothes. And it's like, it's not calling anyone out, but it's just saying, are we acknowledging what we're entering into? Are we seeking to be different? Because actually, I want to be different. So my demeanor, even, you know, for, for myself and the servers in the sanctuary, like how we go about around the altar and the tabernacle, that's just so important. And then lastly, it's this spiritual approach, giving reverence to God in the spiritual sense of how do I approach him in this conversation, in this prayer, and then specifically in the reception of Holy Communion? Do I approach him worthily, even though I'm unworthy? Do I approach him in the state of grace or the best grace I can be in? Meaning, I'm not in mortal sin. Meaning, I've gone to confession if there's a mortal sin on my soul prior to receiving communion. What does mortal sin mean? Mortal sin is something that involves the grave matter. You could make the argument that it's something to do with the Ten Commandments. That it's something that we freely know about and we fully choose to do. So again, an example. If a person knowingly and willingly does not go to church on Sunday, they are in a state of mortal sin. If I'm somewhere where I don't have the ability to go to church, do I have a freedom? No. If I didn't know that before, well, now you do. So now you're all held liable. You're welcome. Approaching God in a spiritual state of grace is probably the most important thing we can do. And so I just want to highlight one more thing for us today. 
and then I'll probably talk about it in future homilies. But it's something known as the precepts of the church. And so the precepts of the church are defined in the catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraphs 2041 to 2043. So if you're listening to this later on the recording, you can find the the paragraph numbers and read them yourselves if you'd like. But the precepts of the church, this is the definition from the catechism, are set in the context of a moral life bound to and nourished by liturgical life. So the precepts are meant to aid the moral and the liturgical parts of our lives. This is what it further says. The obligatory character of these positive laws decree by the pastoral authorities is meant to guarantee to the faithful the very necessary minimum in the spirit of prayer and moral effort in the growth and love of God and neighbor. So why do the precepts exist? Because there are things that the authorities of the church, Peter, as we discover today, who has the keys to bind and loosen, to give more clarity, to correct and change, his, the brother bishops, the, the different councils through centuries of the church, the, the pastoral authorities, right, so the governing body, has said that these are positive laws. These are actually good laws. These are laws that are meant to protect our soul, morally and liturgically. But it also says these are the necessary minimum in the spirit of prayer and moral effect to grow in love of God. And so if we're wanting to grow in relationship with God, the church says this is what we need to do at a minimum. Hopefully none of us want to just play the minimum, but here it is. The first precept Attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor. We always forget about the resting part. Sometimes we forget about the Holy Day of Obligation part. But we got to go to Mass, people. If we want to grow in relationship with God, we got to be here. All right? And if we're not, fix it. Go to confession. It's not that complicated. Please. This requires the faithful to sanctify the day, commemorating the resurrection of the Lord by participating in the Eucharistic celebration in which the Christian community is gathered and by resting from those works and activities which could impede such a sanctification of these days. Now again, someone out there is already thinking in their head, they've got an excuse. Well, I got to work. I got to do this thing. I got to just reorder life. There are individuals who do sacrifice and have to work, and therefore they have to find Sabbath on another day. For the majority of us, we just need to follow this. Second, confess sins at least once a year. This ensures preparation for the Eucharist by the reception of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which continues baptism's works of conversion and forgiveness. We are all fallen and broken people. If we weren't, we wouldn't need God, and yet God is here, and therefore we need him, and we need his grace and his mercy, and I can go to him at any time and receive it if I desire. When people choose not to go to confession, again, there's probably countless reasons, but we should. And in reality, again, remember, this is minimum. We just need to go to confession every time we are in mortal sin. If we're not in mortal sin, at least once a year. Ideally, I would argue once a month. Third, 
receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season. Timeouts. All right, big time out here. Right, we have to go to Mass every week. I have to go to Mass every holiday of obligation, and we need to rest. Nowhere in that first precept did it say, I need to go to Mass and receive communion. Why? Because I'm not prepared. I shouldn't receive communion. But I should receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season, because theoretically I've at least gone to confession in Lent. Number four, observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the church, right? And this just is a reminder about um, entering into the ascetical life to say, like, it's actually good for me to deny certain things um, and to use the church's liturgical calendar to help with that. And then this is the last one. This is the last precept of the church. This one's going to blow your mind. Help to provide for the needs of the church. So everything else has ultimately been for my own benefit, right? Go to Mass, go to confession, receive communion, observe days of fasting and abstinence. That's all a, a thing that I need to be doing. But now the last one actually says, help the needs of the church. Because I'm a part of a bigger body. I belong to something bigger than just myself. I, I have to participate in that. That's so cool. When I was going through RCIA to become Catholic, I didn't know these existed. I don't think I was taught this in RCIA. And yet, like, why did I become Catholic? It wasn't because I had to follow these minimum requirements of the faith. No, it's because I loved the Lord, and I wanted him to have my entire life. I wanted to receive him in the Eucharist. I wanted to receive him well in the Eucharist. Our challenge today is reflecting upon what's happened in the 40 hours of our Eucharistic devotion. Who do we say God is? Reflecting on the life of faith that we've lived up to this point, whether it's been one year as a Catholic, 80 years as a Catholic, if you have other Christians, like whatever, like people who follow Jesus Christ to reflect on the question, who do I say he is? Is he just an idea? Is he just a figure? Or is he actually the savior of the world? Is he actually the one who died so that I can have life? How do I approach him? What reverence do I give to him? How is my demeanor? How do I approach him? Do I, am I following the bare minimum or am I striving for more for my spiritual growth? This should feel like a call out. It should. It shouldn't feel like a sense of shame or embarrassment. Guilt, yes, I'm all about using Catholic guilt for people. I'm a big fan of Catholic guilt. I get guilted into things all the time. But I should only feel the guilt if I realize, actually, I haven't been doing something I should be doing. And if you're thinking, Father, you're talking right to me in this homily, guess what? Then the Lord's talking right to you in this homily. We have such an amazing gift of our faith. Why would we only want the minimum? We have such an amazing gift of Christ in the Eucharist. Why would we want to disrespect or defile him? And I, I think at the heart of that, people don't want to. I don't think people are malicious. I think we're ignorant. I think we don't know sometimes. I don't think we realize what we shouldn't do. Or the devil does have such a hold that he spews this sense of shame into us that causes us to be embarrassed by things. And God doesn't want us to be embarrassed. 
He wants us to be healed. He wants us to be free, and he gives us the ways to do that. Will we choose to follow them? So I pray that in our own reflection, we can come to give a good answer to who we say God is. And what does it mean for me to be a Christian, to be a follower? What is the Father revealing to us so that we can grow in this relationship with his Son?